Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. And for those of you who are in person, it's so good to see your face. And uh, as we were reading through Leviticus, you know, we're over halfway through now. Or as we were reading through Immerse, beginnings, we're over halfway through. But we are in the book of Leviticus. And uh, as I was reading through this, it was reminding me of this book that I read a few years ago uh, called The Code. It's the unwritten rules of baseball in terms of code of conduct. And uh, this is a fascinating book. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, even if you're not, it's just a leadership principle. Uh, one of the opening lines is, the code was and always will be about one thing, respect. If a player feels disrespected or shown up, then retaliation will in some form and undoubtedly occur. For example, if an opposing team's pitcher throws the ball at one of your player's pitchers, then it's your pitcher's responsibility to go ahead and hit one of theirs. In fact, uh, Don Drysdale's rule was two for one. So if you hit one of our guys, I will make sure and hit two of yours. In fact, this Hall of Famer would actually keep a list of pitchers, because he was in the National League, he would keep a list of pitchers under the bill of his hat, and then he would mark off the ones that he hit who hit his other players. Crazy! I mean... Now, what do you think? Barbaric? Childish? Outdated? But actually, a lot like Leviticus here. See, if you think about just any of the books of the Bible that would cause someone to stop reading or keep reading, keep from reading it, Leviticus has to be at the top. People often frame Leviticus as an ancient, outdated, or barbaric book. Uh, you can read tedious sacrifices, gory instructions about slaughtering animals, and then what to do with bodily discharges. And so we might wonder, there's so many rules and rituals that don't pertain to us, why bother reading this book? Or if you did read it, like, why should you have read it? So, just to encourage you, I, I did think of a couple of reasons. One, uh, it is located in the middle of the Pentateuch. It's the heart of the book. These are the first five books of Moses. They're the foundation for all of Scripture, and Leviticus is right in the middle of it. I realize that's kind of a weak reason, but the second reason I think is a little bit stronger. It's got the most direct speech by God of any book in the entire Bible. There's more of God's Word in the Word of God in Leviticus than in any other book. Third, uh, the commands uh, from Leviticus are quoted and debated by Jesus and the religious people around him uh, over and over and over. The greatest commandment actually comes from this book, or part of the greatest commandment. And the fourth reason is at the end of Leviticus, or at the end of Exodus, we see the temple built and God's glorious presence fills the temple so Moses can't go in. Remember, there's that whole golden calf and it's, it's the people are rebellious and so the people can't go in his presence. And so Leviticus opens by saying the Lord called to Moses from the tent, meaning Moses was not in the tent. But after the book of Leviticus is finished, 
when we turn to continue the story in the book of Numbers, you'll see that at the beginning of Numbers, Numbers 1-1, it says that a year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. So somewhere embedded in Leviticus, we get the instructions on how Moses can go from outside the tent to inside the tent. Or if you say it another way, Leviticus shows us how people who are broken and corrupt humans can live in God's holy presence. So that's why I think we should look at the book. And if you're not sure holiness matters to God, there is like one moment of drama in the book of Leviticus. It's where it's in Leviticus 10, where Aaron's two oldest sons, remember Aaron's Moses' uh, brother, he's the first high priest for the people, his two oldest sons, who have actually seen God on the mountain in Exodus 24. They have been in God's presence. They're part of his holy priesthood. They take, um, they put coals of fire in their incense burners in Leviticus 10, verse 1. They sprinkle incense over them. But they disobeyed God by burning the wrong kind of fire. And that's all we get. It's just that we're told it's the wrong kind of fire. Just different than what God had commanded. So the Lord blazed the fire from his presence and burned them up. And then they died before the Lord. Crazy. People who had been with God, who had seen God's presence who had responsibility to represent God in front of the people, died. And were intentionally left with ambiguous words so that we're not quite sure and we have to ponder it. I think it tells me that holiness matters to God and it should matter to us. In Leviticus 19, it actually says, when the Lord said to Moses, give the following instruction to the entire community of Israel, not just to Moses, for all the people, you must be holy, because I, the Lord, am holy. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word holy. You might think of holiness. You might think of someone who's morally good. You might think of someone who's like holier than thou, kind of judgy. But the word holy actually just means, as Krista mentioned, set apart. It means distinct from other things. The first time we see the word is actually in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, verse 3, it says that God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So what God did is he created the world and then he set that one day apart. He made it distinct from the other days. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again because we've got to believe it. Humans were created on day six, which means the first full day they spent with God in the garden was day seven, a day for rest, a day to stop, a day to worship. They get to enjoy God. They get to recreate or recreate and celebrate and it's from this point of rest and fullness that then humans were supposed to do work. That's before the fall. That's before rebellion happens. That's how God designed us, that we were supposed to be human beings before we're human doings. 
We're supposed to be before do. That's part of what it means to be human, and I think it's part of what it means to be holy. So whenever we go to a book, especially in these first five books, we've always got to know where we are, what has happened, what hasn't happened. So in Leviticus, it's a very uh, undramatic book from the sense of like they're stopped in one place. So from Exodus, remember God rescues these people from Egypt. He takes them, he's going to take them into the promised land, but they have to take this pit stop of preparation at Mount Sinai. And from Exodus 19 until Numbers 10, they are sitting at Mount Sinai. They are camped out for over a year, just over a year. They are building the tabernacle. They are getting laws. They are getting festivals. And God is not just, this isn't just like helpful information. God is reforming and transforming a people who is like this newborn nation of newly freed slaves and he wants to turn them into a kingdom of priests to his holy people to represent him to the rest of the world. And in God's timing, it was going to take 10 plagues to get the people out of Egypt. But then it was going to take one year, 10 commandments, 613 rules and seven festivals to get Egypt out of them. So, does anyone know how long it actually took for the people to be in the wilderness? Because it wasn't just one year. It was supposed to be one year, but it ended up being 40 years. Now, I don't think God wanted them to be in the wilderness for 40 years, but he did know it was going to take some time to get the old place and the old way of doing things out of them to be in the new place with a new way of doing things. Because they can't live in the promised land if they're not going to live as God's people. If they live as people who are still in Egypt in the promised land, then they're going to turn the promised land into Egypt, which they are. Now, it's kind of metaphorical, but if you think about it, if you come from a family that constantly lies to get what they want or need, then, and this is the only thing you know, then you think this is normal. Then you go off, you become an adult, and you lie to get what you want or need. If you get married, you bring that into your marriage. If you have kids, you bring that into your family. And this whole thing gets permeated as normal, but it's not normal. That's what God is trying to transform in these people. He wants them to be close to him, and they've already messed it up over and over. So how does he make a way? Leviticus is how he makes a way. How does he do it? So how does he let these people be close to him? The first thing I see, and you saw if you read it, is the first seven chapters are all about rules and sacrifices. He makes these rules or instructions for the people to know how to live as his holy or distinct people. Now, I I get that many of the rules seem strange to us. They seem strange to me. Uh, But we have to remember there's no legal system. There's no law enforcement system. They couldn't go to the police station. I realize that our police have some problems right now. But they couldn't go to the police station and say, hey, my neighbor is stealing my stuff. They couldn't appeal to a court of law. They didn't have that. 
So what they would do is if someone wronged you, you were honor-bound to get retribution. Think of the baseball code. So if your sister, uh, we'll just say for the sake of uh, good language online, if your sister is defiled by someone, then it was your responsibility as her brother to take your brothers and to go kill the person who did that to you. That's what you were supposed to do. Which sounds fine, except the family of the person you killed would then take their whole family and would then go kill you and your brothers. Which would then mean that your family's family would go and attack those families that killed your brothers and you, and then that would transform that. There would be this all-out clan war that would just go on and on. That's what the system was like. In fact, we see it in Genesis 34, where Simeon and Levi, they go and they kill an entire village of a man who uh, defiled their sister. That's the same kind of thing that's happening in this time. So even though it sounds super backwards to us, God's instructions of putting a price on a life, whether it was human or animal, was actually giving value and dignity to life. And it provided a way to resolve disagreements beyond retribution and killing. It's quite progressive, actually. So I hope you don't hear these rules as God trying to burden the people with giant lists of right and wrong. He was trying to give them instructions on how to live wisely and distinctly amongst the people that were all around them that did very barbaric things. They were literally to be a light to the nations around them. So that's why God gave them rules. The other thing I see in Leviticus that God did to bring people close to him is he gave them rituals to know how to live in his holy presence. Remember, God is holy. He can't have sin in his presence. And so there had to be a way for people to be able to come close to him and know they could come close to him. That's why the video talked about being clean and unclean. It was to be in a state to be in God's presence. And so these sacrifices that God instructs the people are for them to understand how serious sin is, how it breaks relationship not just with God but also with other people. And what they can do to make things right in their relationship with God and others. So, just imagine you stole something from someone. And it was your neighbor and you either get caught or you confess. And instead of retaliating, your neighbor says, I forgive you. Now, you've stolen something from your neighbor. So you've been forgiven, but you're not actually reconciled. Because forgiveness says... I'm not going to get even with you. But reconciliation says, let's make things right between us. You wronged me. You stole from me. So how do we make things right? And so what you would have to do is you would have to replace or repay a fair value for whatever you took. But you'd also have to bring a specific animal to go to the tabernacle or this tent of meeting where the priests were You'd have to bring the animal and you'd have to watch the priest kill the animal. And you'd have to watch it die, which is a lot louder and bloodier than I think most of us realize. And then you would watch as the priest sets the sacrifice on the altar and you would watch it burn. 
I think that would have an effect on me. I have to realize that my wrong caused this innocent animal to die. How long would that last? Would it be a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months? Depends on your queasy stomach, I guess. But the blood and the sacrifice weren't about death. Blood was actually about life and about reconciling the relationship through this sacrifice. God made that decision. In Leviticus 17, it talks about the lifeblood of the animal is the life, and I am giving this as an atonement or to cover your sin. That's what God did. God's God. He gets to decide that. But it made a way for the people to be in relationship with God and each other again. So he gave rules so they know how to live as his distinct people. They gave rituals to know how to dwell in his holy presence. And then finally God gave rhythms of holy days or sacred festivals so that every year they could be reminded of their story, who they were, their identity, how God bless them and save them and set them apart so he could bless them and so they could bless the world. We see it in the book of uh, Leviticus verse chapter 23. Chapter 23 has seven festivals. They're really interesting. Uh, Daniel celebrates some of them. He mentioned that because his family's Jewish and we could nerd out for like, I don't know, an hour about this, but I don't know if you'd stay online, so I want to just focus on what they start with because I think what they start with is a key to actually all of them. So in Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 3, it says that the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel, that these are the Lord's appointed festivals or sacred festivals which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. And then he starts. You have six days each week for you to do your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. It's the Lord's Sabbath, and it must be observed wherever you live. Okay, so I find this fascinating. We get these seven festivals, and each of them details specific things about Israel's story and about why they're important, but the Sabbath day is the only one they say that we are supposed to have this complete rest, to do no work, don't prepare any food. The only other day of all of the festivals that there is complete rest is the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement. All the other festivals have partial days of rest, like you don't do any work except for preparing the food. You don't do any work except for going to the festival or performing these things. Now, why would God connect what seems to be ordinary, the weekly Sabbath, with like the extraordinary, the holiest day of the year? It was the day when the high priest could go into the, not just the most holy place, or not the holy place, but the most holy place where he could be in God's presence, where he could do the sacrifice, have the incense, use kill the goat to cover their sin and then send the goat out to remove their sin from all the people for the past year. Why would those two things actually be connected? Might it be because God knows 
how hard it is for us to stop and rest? Is it because the Day of Atonement is the one day of the year where God and the people are in the most complete right relationship with each other? There's harmony between God and his people that day more than any day of the year, and God actually wants us to experience that every week where we get a glimpse of what it's like to be in harmony with God, with each other, all the time. I think because Leviticus 23 puts the Sabbath as the foundation of all the holy time, it's the gateway, if you will, to be in God's presence. It's this place where, and if we go back to the Genesis story, day seven is the only day of all the days where there's no, there was evening and there was morning. The first day, or the second day, or the third. In day seven, you get no, there was evening and there was morning. You get none of that. It's like the day is supposed to continue forward. As if it's not limited to a time and a location that actually this day is still a present possibility for us today. I mean, Jesus actually hints at this in Mark 2 when he goes through the, the, the grain fields and his disciples start breaking heads off of the grain to eat in the Sabbath. The Pharisees, the religious people are like, oh, they're breaking the law. They're, they're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Mark 2, 27. Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not for people to meet the requirements of Sabbath. I mean, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. He was connecting the Sabbath to that day, his age, his time. Which I think makes us go, okay, so how does the Sabbath and, and really all the rules and the rituals and the rhythms of Leviticus actually mean something and matter to us in 2020? Well, what I see in Leviticus is that God made a way for you and me. So how are we making a way for him? How are we moving into God's presence? I know that God is always with us, that the Spirit is present all the time. But if you think about this year especially, we started the year having a five-day work week, having two days off, which most people, and no judgment here, but most people use them for leisure and pleasure, not for worship and recreating or recreating or celebrating God. But now, regardless of that, because again, no judgment, but now regardless of that, we have a seven-day nonstop week where we often don't even know what day it is. And, and in each of those days, we work, we play, we're always doing, we're always occupied, we're always striving. And, and we were doing that even before the pandemic, at least a little bit. But now, overwork, fatigue, burnout, combined with anxiety and depression, and we're just seething. We don't know what is holy and what is not holy. Not because we're going off and doing evil things. Or maybe that's what God is saying. By combining all the days together and never setting aside something as distinct, that is evil. What God calls good is actually setting something apart. 
making a day that makes a way for us to be with God. It's like we're so driven to achieve and accumulate that we've actually removed rest or stop from our operating systems. It's like we've lost the understanding of how to truly rest. Sometimes people, uh, the, the closest equivalent that I could think of is, is the people that try to record just even a minute, let alone an hour of like nature sounds uninterrupted. They, they can't do it. There's so much noise in our world that they have to combine like little bits of, of a few seconds together in order to make it last longer than a minute because it's virtually impossible. And I, and I think that we put that in our minds for the Sabbath, that we can't possibly do this. It must be this luxury for some people, but it's a necessity. Sabbath allows us to stop and reflect on the meaning and the mission of life and work and God. It's, it's a necessity for those of us who want to grow in our wisdom and in our maturity. So Marva Don wrote in her beautiful and practical book on the Sabbath called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, which if you by chance have my copy, could you give it back to me because I can't find it and I'm sure I loaned it out to someone. Sorry for that. She says that keeping the Sabbath is not a legalistic duty, but rather living in accordance with the natural rhythm gives freedom and delight of one whole day that's set apart. And then she tells a story about a wagon train that's headed for Oregon. Remember the Oregon Trail? Yeah, that actually happened. It wasn't just a game. And this whole party of people were going to Washington, to Oregon, and they were stopping every week to observe the Sabbath. Their whole camp would rest. Their horses would rest. Their families would rest. But as the winter approached, it made getting to Oregon so much more important. And so the, the wagon train actually broke into two groups. One who thought, thought it best to continue to go seven days nonstop to get there before winter, and the other that was going to keep observing Sabbath. And once you know it, the second group reached Oregon first. They found that their families, their wagons, their horses could travel further in six days with one day of rest than they could taking no rest. Sure, it provided a physical advantage, but I think if you really study, you will see that there are spiritual social, relational, and even financial benefits to keeping something holy. Just ask Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A. I don't see their finance statements, but I'm guessing. But bottom line, it's not about Sabbath. It's the fact that Jesus challenged us to make time for sacred time, to structure our lives in a way today that would help us to thrive tomorrow. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And aren't we weary and burdened in 2020 more than ever? Aren't we weary and burdened before this election more than ever? And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Jesus is the Sabbath for us. He says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find 
rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, this crisis that we live in right now, it's gone on way longer than than most of us wanted or even could have imagined. And a lot of us are just dead tired. We are pandemic fatigued or COVID fatigued, and some of us are seeking leisure and pleasure or escape, thinking that that will give us peace. But those are just time off. That's not Sabbath. That's not automatically life-giving. Sabbath isn't supposed to be boring or a burden. It's supposed to be freeing. It's just instruction and rhythm combined with a little bit of ritual to reflect on meaning. It's to design our life today in a way that we can thrive tomorrow. It's letting Jesus be in charge. So what about you? What about us? How can we live in a way today that helps us to thrive tomorrow, no matter what tomorrow brings? Because we know that it's not about the rituals and the rules or the, relation, the, the rhythms. I mean, maybe you don't know that. Maybe you think that church is all about having to do all of these certain things. Well, even though God made this way to provide for his people to live in his presence, they couldn't do it. The rules and the rhythms and the rituals, they weren't enough to keep the people in right relationship with God and each other. Humans still messed up. They're still broken. The people of God still went away from God. They reformed some of their behaviors, but unfortunately, they didn't reshape their souls. And so the prophets would predict that they need a new covenant, a new agreement. They would actually need a new spirit in their, in their lives or new hearts in their bodies so that they could follow God, which is why God sent Jesus Christ, to be the rituals, the rules, the rhythms, to fill that relationship for us, to give us the new heart and the new spirit, because he didn't just die for our sin, he actually fulfilled all of these things that are in Leviticus. He, he was the perfect lamb at Passover, and he was the perfect law given at Pentecost, and he did dwell with the people like they celebrate in tabernacles, and he was both goats of the day of atonement. He was the one that died to cover the people's sins. He was the scapegoat that got sent off into the wilderness to show that our sin was as far from God as the east is from the west. Jesus is all of those things. We put our trust and our hope in him, which is why I think Colossians 2 says, hey, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. Because these rules are only a shadow of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. This is after Jesus has died, after he's been raised. The Apostle Paul says this to the church at Colossae, that Christ himself is that reality. So what do you need today? The rules and the rituals and the rhythms, they're not actually going to free us. Christ is going to free us. But these things might provide a way for us to thrive 
tomorrow. So Hebrews 4 tells us to boldly come into the throne room of our gracious God, to come into God's presence because when we do, we'll receive mercy and we'll find grace to help us wherever we are. Friends, are you just dead tired? Do you just need to find rest? Christ is your rest. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So let's come to him and learn from him. God, would you help us live today in a way that would help us to thrive tomorrow? God, we confess that we let all of our days bleed together, that we rarely set aside anything as holy, let alone a day that's holy. We don't set aside our time as holy. We don't set aside our money as holy. We don't set aside our computer as holy or our leisure as holy or even our food as holy. We don't set aside friendships or relationships as holy. And God, we pay the consequences for that. But I thank you that you are a gracious God and you continue to make a way. God, I thank you that you made a way, even though it sounds strange to us, for these people long ago so that they could know that they know that they can be right with you. But God, I thank you even more that Christ came into this world, that he lived the perfect life, that he fulfilled all of these Old Testament rhythms and rituals, but ultimately, God, that he died to give us life. All of us, every one of us, even those that feel as far away from God as we could imagine, even then, Christ's sacrifice is enough. God, so I pray that you would help us to find a way to reflect with you, that you would help us to find a way to accept relationship with you, that you would help us find a way, again, today, to live in a way that we could thrive tomorrow, to be light and love and peace for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.